H. Richard Niebuhr describes the gospel of modern Protestant liberalism in these words. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. In other words, modern liberalism teaches that God is love, incapable of being mad at anybody. Kind of like Mr. Rogers. Contrast that with the first century A.D. people where historians and scholars tell us that one of the reasons that the gospel was spread so quickly in the first century is that you had a culture that was bothered by its sin. So the gospel came as an answer to something that was bothering them. And that's so important. Conversely, the the gospel isn't welcomed when a people do not think that their fundamental problem is sin and rebellion. In fact, the gospel becomes a stumbling block, an offense, something foolish, and this isn't new. We're seeing it even in Jeremiah's day. And that brings us to verse 1 of Jeremiah 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So this is derived from God himself, from the Holy Spirit. Hear the words of this covenant. Now this will be the, what we would know as the Mosaic covenant. The Sinai covenant. There's different terms for the same covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. That I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace that's a metaphor for Egypt saying listen to my voice and do all that I command you so shall you be my people and I will be your God that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day and then I answered Now, most translations outside of the ESV and the King James, or the New King James, translates it this way. I like that translation better. Amen. ESV, so be it, Lord. Amen, or so be it, Lord. Now, the wording of verses 2 to 5. Now, this is going to get a little heady because we're dealing with the covenants here and the relationship between the covenants. But the the wording in in verses 2 to 5 here is maybe the clearest indication in the entire Bible of the continuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. So those those covenants work together, all right? And, And so God is the God of his people in both covenants. Now, you know, in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, it's kind of a quad promise. God promised a people 
a place, protection, and a program. The program was, you will be the means of my blessing to the nations. So the blessing to the nations is coming through the seed of Abraham. And so God liberated Israel from Egypt and made a covenant with them to fulfill his promise made to Abraham. These covenants work together. They're not in, he's not changing his mind. He's not going from plan A to plan B. It is plan A, all right? The heart of the covenant with Israel, that is the Mosaic covenant, is that the Lord will save, the Lord will protect his people. Now, the larger purpose of this covenant is to enable them, now this is very important, to be a blessing to the other nations. From the Abrahamic covenant on, we know that it's going to be through the seed of Abraham that God is going to bless the nations. What, are that, what is that blessing? Fundamentally, it's salvation, isn't it? Uh, those nations that were judged in Genesis 11 because of the Babel Tower fiasco and were dispersed over the earth, now God is going to come and his solution to that curse is through the seed of Abraham. And so, to put it another way, by means of the Mosaic Covenant, now the Mosaic Covenant, we saw that in Exodus, right? Summarily um, articulated by the Ten Commandments, through the means of the Mosaic Covenant, God intends for Israel to fulfill the Adam-like role that was reassigned to, Burm, uh, to, to uh, uh, Abraham. And so we saw in Genesis 1 that God is going to fill the earth. He blesses Adam, and Adam is to fill the earth, to rule, to take dominion uh, as God's vice regent. Well, after the fall, that assignment is reassigned to Abraham and his seed. All right? And so now it will be by means of the Mosaic Covenant that God will fulfill that through his people. And, and it's important also to see that the Mosaic Covenant is gracious, not legalistic. Now that's important. What's the difference between the two? If it was legalistic, then it would be Israel ascending a moral ladder in order to earn and curry favor with God. But this covenant was made with people who had been redeemed out of slavery. And so there is grace that is the ground of this covenant. And so before God established this covenant with, with Moses and the people, he redeemed them from slavery and he adopted Israel as his people freeing them to be his people and he their God. And so grace and mercy precedes and undergirds his demands. Always. Grace and mercy precedes and undergirds his demands. But having said that, in the Mosaic Covenant, there were demands. They were absolute demands. If, God, if Israel keeps the covenant stipulations... You can see those in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 26 to 28. They will prosper. They will prosper with joy. But if they violate them, then curses follow. 
Now, to drive home that this is all of grace, and this can get confusing because it sounds what I just said is legalistic. To drive this home, although the standard for the law was perfect obedience, Israel's covenant fellowship with God was grounded by grace through the sacrificial system. That's why the sacrificial system was given. God knew they couldn't keep his law. And so these animals would be sacrificed, you know, for the wages of sin is death. And God would satisfy his divine justice on their sin via these animal sacrifices. But the curse would come when God's provision for their disobedience was rejected as evidenced by an absence of repentance. That's the issue. I hope that makes sense. And so God here is reminding Judah of his covenant once again. Think of a mortgage. So you take out a mortgage on a house or a, you take out a, a, some kind of payment schedule for a car, all of this is to take on a massive responsibility. And therefore, the terms of such contracts must be considered. Even the fine print has to be considered in contracts like that, correctly. Well, in the case of the Mosaic Covenant, there was no fine print. The terms were clear, and here's what it was. Obey me and do everything I command you and the sanctions for violating that contract was in neon lights. Curse. Curse. Curses served to provide the terms or protect the terms of the contract. Jeremiah's answer to God's curse on those who would forget his covenant was, Amen. That's what he said. So be it, Lord. But he's not coming up with that out of nowhere. He's picking up Deuteronomy 27. And I want you just to hear, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to hear Deuteronomy 27.10. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. So let me review again. Uh, they would not be able to obey perfectly, and that's why God provided the sacrificial system. And one of the evidences that you were walking by faith is you abided by that sacrificial system in the obedience of faith, all right? So this was a, 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 a covenant of grace. But notice verse 15. They will, the, the, the people would, uh, at this point, function almost like a choir, so after the terms of the covenant, notice verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Same word. Same word that Jeremiah just used in verse 5. Notice in verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who, who moves his neighbor's landmark and, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the soldier or the fatherless, the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. You just go on and on. Then you get to verse 26. Cursed be anyone 
who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And so here, God is reminding the people of the covenant terms, the stipulations, and there's one among them who says, Amen. It's the prophet Jeremiah. And it's going to be costly for him as well. Notice when we in verse 6. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. That's the natural condition right there. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do. But they did not. Again the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their five forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. So the judgment is going to be the exile. And four reasons are given here as to why this judgment is inevitable. Four reasons right here in the text. The, sec- the, the first one you see in the second part of verse 11. The first reason is here. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. The first reason that this judgment is inevitable is that God is at the point where he refuses to even listen to them. Now that's a dangerous place to be for a person. When God has gotten to that point that he will not even listen to you. How far is that? I don't want to find out. People who absolutely, persistently refuse to listen to God cannot be upset when he says he won't listen to them. (coughs) So that's the first reason that this judgment is inevitable. The second reason we see in verses 12 and 13. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings. But they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. The second reason this judgment is inevitable is that false gods cannot help you in the day of judgment. They cannot deliver. Idols multiply because they have short termination dates. Idolatry always ends up disappointing and then it's time to get another god. And that's why you have idolatry idols on every street. They just continue to multiply. The idols never deliver on what they promise. And again, uh, these idols for them were actual physical 
constructed things out of trees, right? But we have idols as well. Things that we look to for significance and worth and identity and happiness and joy and, and pleasure. And when we do not get those things as we want, negative emotions come out. Inordinate anger, uh, despair, uh, jealousy, discontentment, coveting. All of these negative emotions are evidence that I have a functional idol in my life. And the idols never deliver. They never have and they never will. And that's why they multiply. The third reason this judgment is inevitable is found in verse 14. Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. And so for the second time, God tells Jeremiah not to pray for them. So the remnant of believers in the culture here are told not to even pray for these people because God would not honor their prayer. Now, I don't think that we, we, we personally are never going to be commanded to do that because we don't have the special revelation that Jeremiah had. Well, we do have special revelation. It's the finished word of God. But he, he, received, <coughs> he received these inspired words uh, and he well, had the office of prophet. But it does show you that there, you can come to a place where you've just been uh, given over. And that is a very dangerous place to be. And the fourth reason is found in verse 15. That this judgment is inevitable. Right, what right has my beloved, my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds. And so they're still coming to church. Or to put it more uh, covenantally here, they're coming to temple. What right has my beloved in my house when she's done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? And so they evidently presumptuously believed that they could cling to their idols and also receive God's help whenever they needed it. They assumed that he was somehow satisfied and placated by their sacrifices apart from the obedience of faith. As we we saw this morning, there's this mentality that that God can be used. And so you you come to church and, and you go through all the religious motions and you seek to use God uh, to fulfill your will. Uh, it reminds me of the religion of the day, moral therapeutic deism. I don't think this is full-blown moral therapeutic deism. But in moral therapeutic deism, which is the religion of the millennial generation, the central goal of life is happiness and personal fulfillment. And then... God doesn't need to be involved in your life except in times of emergency. That's the way many people perceive God today. Uh, He's not interested or involved in every area of your life, but he's there when you need him. 
And, and that appears to be the problem here. They would come to worship, but throughout the week, their God was their false idols. Well, Jeremiah closes out his little sermon here in verses 16 and 17. The Lord once called you a green olive tree. Notice it's past tense. Beautiful with good fruit. So God planted Israel to be this fruit-bearing, beautiful, and glorious tree. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Now let me just say this as a side. Not all of Judah was corrupt. Uh, you can read the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel was taken. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, that was just a remnant of young men who were taken into exile even though they were believing men. Remember, under the old covenant, there was no distinction. Uh, you were born into the covenant. So you, you might be an unbeliever, but you were circumcised on the eighth day, and you may grow up to be an unbeliever, but you were still a part of the covenant family. Of course, the, the distinction, the, the discontinuity between the, the old covenant and the new covenant is under the new covenant, only believers are a part of that covenant. That's why we only baptize believers. That's why we don't, agree with infant baptism because the covenant sign under the new covenant is believer's baptism, all right? So under the old covenant, you have believers and unbelievers, and so believers would suffer the same fate as the unbeliever, not eschatologically, but in space and time. And so generally... Israel or Judah was deemed a believing nation when the king was a believer, the one representing the many. And the, the nation was deemed an unbelieving nation when the king was apostate. The northern king, that kingdom never had a, a godly king. The uh, northern kingdom had 20 kings. The southern kingdom had 20 kings. But <clears throat> the northern kingdom never had a godly king. And so they were apostate from the beginning. But remember... Elijah, who was ministering to the northern kingdom, thought he was the only believer there. And God said, I have 7,000. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so they were depopulated like the Assyrians because you were part of the covenant community. But that's not to say there weren't believers a part of that, those people. Well, Jeremiah is one of the few in Judah, but we know there were others here. And this sermon ends here with a kind of a change of image. The Lord compares Judah in better days <coughs> to, to a, a thriving olive tree, a, a symbol of fruitfulness, but that was then. And that's how he closes out his message. Now, messages like this are not popular when you're preaching to a people who aren't bothered by their sin. But what happens next, and Jeremiah knew it wouldn't be popular, 
But what happens next, Jeremiah never saw coming. And that brings us to verse 18. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living. By the way, that's language from Isaiah 53. This is a type of Christ here in Jeremiah. That his name be remembered no more. God revealed to him that there was a plot to kill him, in other words. Why? Because of his preaching. Verse 20, But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. That's how, by the way, spiritual leaders make it when there's opposition and there's misrepresentation. The only way to make it, because it's painful, and any spiritual leader's wife will tell you there's sleepless nights. You commit your cause to the Lord. And that's what Jeremiah's doing. Lord, I know vindication is with you. Notice he doesn't try to defend himself to these people. He, he commits his cause. He entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. So who are these people that he is committing to the Lord for vengeance? It's quite the surprise. Verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Now why is this shocking? The men of Anathoth. Look all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1. Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. This is his hometown. His hometown people are threatening his life if he doesn't stop preaching this message. Had to be extraordinarily painful for him. Verse 22. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. They deserve that. There are no victims in hell. There's no victims in judgment. Just culprits. They knew the terms of the covenant. And when Israel said amen to the covenant, these people were saying Amen to the covenant. That's how representation works. And here they are rejecting the terms of the covenant. And when someone is exposing that to them, they want to kill him. Instead of repenting, they want to kill him. They want to, they want to have his mouth shut permanently. And that that's one thing preaching does. Faithful preaching exposes whether one really believes or not. And that's why faithful preaching is so important. It has two functions. We saw that all the way back in Jeremiah uh, 1 as well.
to pluck up, to break down, to destroy and overthrow, that's a negative function to build and to plant. And so faithful preaching does both. It exposes unbelief and a, and a refusal to repent, and it also builds and it plants. God saves through faithful preaching. But here, there is resistance to the message. They do not want to hear what Jeremiah has to say. And God promises, I am going to deal with them. And so God's condemnation is the last word in chapter 11. But remember, these chapter divisions were added later. Jeremiah wants to have the last word. We're going to look at the first six verses. We'll be out of here in just a short time, five minutes. So this chapter division is unfortunate because it's easy to think this is just another conversation. Actually, it's the same conversation. God has promised, I'm going to judge them in the year of their punishment. Jeremiah's not satisfied with that. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet, I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Man, you see that in several Psalms, don't you? Psalm 73. Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Jeremiah knows that God is going to vindicate him. He knows he's going to judge these wicked people. But why is he taking so long? Why do good things happen to bad people? That's the question of the Bible, isn't it? And we're a lot like Jeremiah. You know, we know that the enemies of God, we know the abortionist, we know those people who have redefined marriage, we, we know judgment's coming, that these people are facing horrific judgment. And still we get deeply discouraged by the apparent triumph of evil in our day, don't we? We're tempted often to think like Jeremiah here. Why are they prospering, Lord? I know judgment's coming, but they're enjoying your creation in the meantime while the righteous are suffering for it. Verse 2. You plant them, they take root. They grow and produce fruit. That's Jeremiah. He's, he's, he's struggling with God here. He just does not understand how this could be. He's the righteous one, and he, he's suffering deeply. And the unrighteous, who have no regard for the covenant, are prospering. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Man, that's an indicting statement. You are near in their mouth. They are faithful in worship attendance. They even sing in the choir. They teach Sunday school. They come on Sunday night. wasn't applying that to y'all by the way <laughs> but you oh lord know me you see me and test my heart towards you 
pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. I am not content with your timetable. That's what Jeremiah is saying. And you can see why he wants God to move fast, especially with that last line in verse 4. Notice in verse 4. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beast and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. In other words, the he there is likely Jeremiah. The words here contain a veiled threat that Jeremiah would die long before his enemies did. If you don't take care of them, they're going to take care of me. That's what Jeremiah is saying there. He clearly wants an answer to the problem of evil. That's the issue. Like we saw with David's dismay this morning. He sees his brother try to balance the ark. God judges him immediately and, and, and David wants nothing to do with that. So we see David, we see Jeremiah. They're, they're humans like us. These aren't superheroes. They're, they're, they're like us. That's why I love the scripture. It's bare honesty. We see the flaws of the heroes. It's one of the, again, the testimonies to the trustworthiness of scripture. But God, having said that, does not always answer our questions the way we want him to. In the book of Job, get this. Job asked God 16 times why. And God's response back to Job was 70 questions. 70 questions back to Job's 16 questions of why. Now in the case of Jeremiah, again, God answers back with questions to Jeremiah. We'll close here in verses 5 and 6. The Lord answers Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you. How will you compete with horses? <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what he means by that. But what most people believe he means by this is that if you think this is difficult, it's, it's going to get really difficult. Just wait. That's right. You haven't even seen what's coming. It, it hasn't gotten hot in the kitchen yet. And if in a safe land you're so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? He's talking about a particular place where is the ground zero of this rebellion, where Jeremiah will be physically harmed. He hasn't been physically affected yet. He's had death threats. It's going to get more difficult for Jeremiah. He's saying, how can I use you, Jeremiah, if you can't even handle this? Man, this is, I can't tell you how, in a strange way, this is encouraging to me. It really is. It, but it does remind me that God's in control, doesn't it? Even in the struggle. For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them. 
though they speak kindly words to you. We'll pick up there next time. But essentially he's saying, you haven't seen anything yet. More is on the way. All of this because, unlike the people who in the first century A.D. were bothered by their sin, these people love their sin. And that does not bode well for preachers who are called to take on that sin. And God raises up preachers to do this because he's good. Didn't we see that this morning? He's not safe, but he's good. And one of the evidences that he's good is he raises up preachers to take on our sin. Why? Because there's no way around the curse on sin. There's no way around the curse. You see, even if the Gentile nations were not under the Mosaic law, remember the Mosaic law was a covenant made with Israel. They are under the covenant of creation. And so you don't get out from under the curse. The curse is on sin. So there's no way around the curse, but there is a way through the curse. And we have to make that distinction. There's no way around the curse. The curse is coming on sin. But there's a way through the curse. It passes through Jesus, the true suffering prophet, the greater suffering prophet, and his cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, right? Indeed, Jeremiah was not the last prophet to amen the curse of God, all right? As Philip Ryken points out, in the same night that Jesus was betrayed, after sharing a covenant meal with his disciples, he said amen to the covenant between God and his people. It says his soul was very sorrowful even unto death. Matthew 26, verse 38. He shrank back from that cursed cup. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is saying, Amen, Father. So be it, Father. He is saying, Amen, to the covenant and the curses on the covenant. Indeed, even before coming under the curse on the cross, like Jeremiah, Jesus was the victim of a conspiracy, wasn't he? The scribes and the Pharisees, they plotted against him to take his life, Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. And like Jeremiah, Jesus was betrayed by close friends. We'll see that later in the book of Jeremiah. And like Jeremiah, Jesus was rejected by his friends and family for preaching in the name of God. He was a gentle lamb led to the slaughter, just as we see here with Jeremiah unlike Jeremiah who who cried out for judgment on these people when he was accused before the Sanhedrin he remained silent and made no answer 
Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And even when he was on the cross, here's what Jesus said. Unlike Jeremiah who said, when are you going to lay down the hammer? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23. In other words, he was inviting all the curses of the covenant to fall upon him. For our idolatry. For our lovelessness. For our disdain for the word of God. And for every other sin. For our guilt. So now, God can be who he is. Holy and righteous and just and still say amen to the promises he has made to us in his son the promise the forgiveness of sins the promise of eternal life the promise of abundant life that's what jeremiah has to say to us tonight let's pray father thank you for this text we thank you that there is good news in this text but we have to digest the bad news in order to get to the good news. And Lord, I thank you that we have prophets like Jeremiah to glean from, to read, to meditate on, to be convicted by, but also to be encouraged by. Because there was one greater than Jeremiah who came, a greater prophet, who revealed by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation and then accomplished that salvation as our great priest satisfying divine justice taking your wrath taking the curse saying amen to the curse so that in his resurrection all the promises of God are yes and amen in him we ask these things for his sake Amen.